0: The History of the World Podcast Written and presented by Chris Hasler Volume 3 The Classical World Episode 68 The Han Dynasty Part 2 episode we described how Emperor Wu became the Emperor in the year 141 BCE. Emperor Wu had decided that he wanted to be a strong Emperor and where his predecessors had looked to pacify their mighty nomadic step-neighbours to the north, the Xiongnu Empire, Emperor Wu decided that he wanted to gain a political advantage in their tense relationship and was prepared to take military action to ensure the balance of power was not against Han China. Emperor Wu would use the strategy of expanding his borders in order to gather more wealth and manpower to support the cause of the ongoing war with the Xiongnu. It's possible that the Xiongnu were complacent about the abilities and aggressive inclination of their Chinese neighbours, but the Han were successful in taking back influence over the borderlands between themselves and the Tiongnu and would achieve success in the Ordos Loop, the Gobi Desert and the Hexi Corridor. Control of the Hexi Corridor was quite important too as it was a recently discovered pathway to new trading opportunities on a transcontinental scale not realised on any significant scale previously. So everything was pointing in the right direction for Han China and Emperor Wu in the first 35 years of his impressively long reign and he had turned China into a nation more large and powerful than ever. The biggest challenge about having a large and powerful empire is keeping a large and powerful empire. Emperor Wu would have to alter his methods of taxation and changes are often not well received. New taxation was applied to salt, iron and wine in order to sustain the expense of maintaining this empire against disgruntled neighbours and assimilated peoples. Han China was now double its original size with a population of over 50 million people. In later life we can recognise some traits in the personality of Emperor Wu which could be described as questionable. Despite Emperor Wu being a huge advocate of Confucianism he certainly did not personally represent Confucianism very well with a very harsh and possibly slightly maniacal attitude towards his life, rule and legacy. He had restructured the lands of Han China and appointed regional governors But when peasants rose up against taxation, Emperor Wu declared that if such a rebellion rose up somewhere, then the governor of that region would be executed. Emperor Wu seemed to become rather neurotic in his later years, executing anyone who spoke out against him. If there were financial stresses put on the empire by its imperial expansion and sustenance, then Emperor Wu would not help by exhausting money on palace building and unnecessary luxuries. The benevolence promoted by the philosopher Confucius seemed to be missing from Emperor Wu's personality. Emperor Wu emulated the attitude of the first ever Chinese emperor, Qin Shi Huang, by attempting to look for an elixir that would guarantee him immortality. His quest for immortality would spur him to continue building elaborate palaces to attract spirits of immortality towards him, and the peasants and merchants would suffer financially as a consequence. Emperor Wu had been the Emperor of Han China, for an incredible 50 years and was now deep into his 60s. Despite Emperor Wu's belief that a magical elixir existed that would give him immortality, he was also intolerant of witchcraft and it could be punishable by death. Emperor Wu knew that when his earthly body gave up on him, that he required an heir, and that heir would be his son, the Crown Prince Liu Ju. Crown Prince Liu Ju was accused of witchcraft against his own father, and so members of the Imperial Army were sent to capture him, but he committed suicide before his capture, and the army slaughtered everyone at his household, including his two sons. How much of a hand that Emperor Wu had in these events, or whether the Crown Prince's death was an outcome that Emperor Wu welcomed? are both unclear. It does seem that the final years of Emperor Wu's reign were marred by personal tragedies. He finally passed away in 87 BCE after a reign of around 54 years. After Emperor Wu The Han Dynasty had lost its great figurehead with the passing of Emperor Wu and Han China would lose some of its greatness. However, there was still a great empire to look after and defend and ongoing conflicts with the Xiongnu to the north. With the importance of the trade route to the west opening up new possibilities for trade, it would be important not only to gain control of the Hexi Corridor, but also the lands of the Tarin Basin, which were some of the last lands before reaching those kingdoms such as those occupied by Indo-Greeks which contained a fusion of cultures, amalgamating Indic cultures of the subcontinent with those remnants of Alexander the Great's Great eastward Conquests around 250 years previous. On the route from the Hexi Corridor west to the Tarin Basin, you would pass by the Turpan Basin, which was dominated by the Jushi Kingdom who found themselves sandwiched between the ambitions of Han China and the Tiongnu Empire in their struggles against each other. The great Chinese diplomat Zheng Tian had described the Chishi Kingdom to the Han Chinese court in his accounts and recognised it as being under the influence of the Tiongnu during the late 2nd century BCE. If the Han could gain control of the Chishi kingdom, then they would have great influence over the Silk Road, and this could greatly weaken the Xiongnu. The culmination was the Battle of Chishi, where the Han were victorious, gaining control of the Chishi kingdom in 67 BCE. 7 years later and the Han had also taken control of all of the desert oasis cities of the Hexi Corridor and around the Yumen Pass and the Yang Pass enabling them to set up a protectorate of the western regions around the Tarim Basin essentially bringing those independent central african states under Han influence the Han had influence over the eastern stretch of the Silk Road The royal court of the Tiongnu was in disarray with understandable uprisings against their leaders during this period of decline. Han China was not necessarily being led with great stability either, but the Tiongnu were certainly not strong enough during this period to have any kind of impact on the situation. In the year 36 BCE, the Xiongnu and Han China met in a battle all of 2,000 miles west of the Han capital city of Chang'an, showing just how vitally important these Silk Road lands and societies were to both parties just the fact that they were willing to travel so far down this route to secure the loyalties of the tribes and kingdoms of these routes right up to the expanding eastward border of the growing Parthian Empire who had taken control of the important lands of Sakastan. It was named the Battle of Gigi after Gigi Chanyu, the Chanyu or Emperor of the Tsiangnu who was defeated and killed. The Han were assisted by the Wusun, who were an Indo-European speaking steppe culture who were once under the influence of the Xiongnu but had now created a power base of their own in this area. Gigi Chanyu's severed head was displayed as a trophy of victory and he was the only Xiongnu Chanyu to be killed by the Han Chinese. Despite all of this success against the Xiongnu the situation on a domestic level was not particularly good in Han China and this is likely to be because of the expenditure required to secure the lands to the west of the Hexi corridor and a prolonged period of economic retrenchment dominated the first century BCE and what we mean by that is reduced spending and economic hardship. Economic hardship creates resentment within the population and inevitably the leadership becomes less trusted and the rule is weaker as a consequence of the diminishing respect from the empire's subjects. Concubines of the emperors would try to promote the fortunes of their own offspring and the court eunuchs wouldn't be able to resist backing the right prince and playing their part in the intrigues of these affairs quite reminiscent of the situation during the reign of Ramesses III of Egypt and the circumstances that led to the end of his reign over a thousand years earlier. In 33 BCE, the Emperor Yuan died leaving his wife to become the Empress Dowager Wang and his son to become the new Emperor Cheng. Empress Dowager Wang, as her name suggests, came from the Wang clan, and members of the clan closely associated to the empress Dowager and her son the emperor were allowed to take important positions of office. The Wangs enjoyed this opportunity and felt that this position of importance was worth preserving. They would look to influence the choices and decisions of the emperor in order to bolster their own position and suppress the progress of any individuals not of the Wang clan. Concerns arose when Emperor Cheng had reached his forties and despite having a number of concubines, had not produced an heir. The emperor would be under pressure to select an heir in the event of an untimely death, and he would need to pick somebody who he believed would be capable of doing the job. So he opted for his nephew, Prince Liu Xin but this choice was not popular with everybody in this frenzied empire of power-hungry individuals hoping for Emperor Cheng to select an heir that suited their own individual tastes. Emperor Cheng's untimely death did actually happen when he suffered a stroke in 7 BCE. The Prince Liu Xin did indeed become the Emperor Ai. Emperor Ai was only around 20 years old when he acceded to the imperial throne and the Empress Dowager Wang attempted to continue to influence the young emperor to ensure that the Wang clan maintained a position of influence in the court of the empire. However, Empress Dowager Wang faced competition for her position as the Grand Empress Dowager from other matriarchal figures at the royal court including Emperor Ai's mother, and the previous emperor's wife. Emperor Ai was certainly homosexual and we can feel confident about this because it wasn't shameful for an emperor to have male favourites in the Han Chinese era so it was documented without prejudice. The Wang clan's influence was diminished during the reign of Emperor Ai mainly due to the fact that there were many different influential individuals at court but there was a popular calling for a member of the clan called Wang Meng to be invited back to an influential position at the royal court in the year 2 BCE. The following year, Emperor Ai died at the very young age of 26, although he was reportedly quite sickly in his lifetime, so his death may not be suspicious. Emperor Ai's eight-year-old cousin, would become Emperor Ping and the Grand Emperor Dowager Wang had regained her position of influence and appointed Wang Meng to be a highly influential figure at government and the leader of the army. So now the Wang clan were firmly back in the game. Wang Meng was not necessarily all about his own clan though and although he tried to prevent other clans rising to power, he did have a reputation for impartiality. Just five years into Emperor Ping's reign, Wang Meng would arrange for the young emperor to be married to his own daughter. Emperor Ping was just 14 years old when he died and possibly poisoned at the hands of Wang Meng, who feared that the Emperor Ping was beginning to harbour a dangerous resentment of him. The next emperor was a mere baby called Ruzi Ying. Wang Meng was his regent before it became obvious that the Han Dynasty had no value and by the year 9 BCE Wang Meng was declared as the actual emperor and the infant emperor was pushed into the background. Usurpation The imperial throne had been usurped and the Han Dynasty Was over, and we're only halfway through this week's episode. The new dynasty was the Qin dynasty, literally the New Dynasty. Most would agree that the Han dynasty had run its course and that a change was necessary, and Wang Meng was the most popular candidate. So his usurpation wasn't seriously opposed when it happened. China was not at its strongest and Wang Meng's new Qin dynasty brought with it new hope. Wang Meng would introduce reforms in an attempt to correct the economy, but in a weakened economy, there will always be a particular demographic of society who will feel like they've drawn the short straw, and there was also corruption amongst officials, and as such, the peasant class would not be able to financially recover as a consequence. Even pressure from the aristocracy would lead to some U-turns in Wang Meng's policies. Wang Meng's tenure as emperor was becoming a hopeless case of whack-a-mole, as he would just try to put problems to bed as efficiently as possible before the next one emerged. Sadly though for Wang Meng and China, things would go from bad to worse societies on the fringes of the empire would rise up against the central state, meaning that the borders were in chaos, and not least of all from the resentment Xiongnu, who had never forgiven the Chinese for their dominance over them during the previous century. Droughts affected the fertility of the land and especially in the region of the Yellow River, a vital vein of the Chinese lands. Initially some of the peasants degenerated into a life of banditry but worse still some were having to practice cannibalism just to survive. The descendants of the Han Dynasty who had initially supported the cause of Wang Meng realised that things were not improving and decided to move in on Wang Meng who by now had become distrustful and mentally fragile as a consequence of his misfortune. The Han gathered an army and Wang Meng moved quickly to amass an army of over 400,000 individuals to besiege the Han army. However, the Han were amazingly able to break out from the siege and attack Wang Meng's army before moving on to sack the Chinese capital city of Chang'an and slaughter Wang Meng in his imperial palace putting an end to the usurping Qin dynasty after just 14 years. One of the peasant movements of this time were called the Red Eyebrows and just two years after the death of Wang Meng they were able to secure the imperial throne themselves against their fellow Han revolutionists. They painted their eyebrows red, possibly in an attempt to look more demonic. This would represent the start of something referred to as the Eastern Han Dynasty, distinct from the era before Wang Meng's usurpation, which is referred to as the Western Han period. Eastern Han The first emperor of the Eastern Han was Guangwu. He had to defeat the Red Eyebrows who deposed Wang Meng a couple of years earlier, but he succeeded and ruled from the former capital city of Luoyang. Guangwu had a major challenge on his hands as the emperor of an unstable empire and nobody had yet been able to master the art of turning China's fortunes around and finding stability. Guangwu needed to make war to get where he needed to be and to stabilise the empire but he seemed to take no glory in warfare, recognising it as an economical burden and looking to avoid it at all costs. He would have to secure the lands to the north and to the south of the empire, so conflict was inevitable, but Guangwu would see no value to war for the sake of war. Guangwu seemed to be happy to allow aristocratic families to have more private ownership, securing their loyalty to him. Despite the Xiongnu appearing to resurge somewhat during the early part of the first century, there appeared to be a succession crisis and eight Xiongnu tribes seceded from the Xiongnu empire and formed a kingdom of the southern Xiongnu. Guangwu had no desire to antagonise the southern Xiongnu, despite some feeling that this could be the ideal time. Guangwu clearly had little desire to look for unnecessary war but the Han Dynasty was starting to look much healthier due to this sober style of rule. Guangwu died in 57 CE leaving Han China more stable than he found it. He was succeeded by his son who would rule as Emperor Ming. We can certainly say that by Ming's reign The Yueji that migrated away from the Tiongnu during the 2nd century BCE had diversified and one of its tribes called the Guishang by the Chinese founding the Kushan Empire as this same tribe was also called the Kushana. The Kushana prospered due to the fact that they had successfully occupied the lands between the Parthians and the western regions of Inner Asia which the Han lost influence over but regained in a short time after this period. As we learned during episode 61, the Kashana embraced Buddhism. And the Silk Road was so fast paced as an ancient mercantile superhighway that it appears that the knowledge of Buddhism first reached China from the Kashana during this period, as it is believed that the White Horse Buddhist Temple was established in the Han capital of Luoyang around the year 68. The breakup of the Tiongnu tribes into northern and southern created a weakness that the Hans exploited well. The southern Tiongnu were helplessly being subjugated by Han China and their lands and people were slowly being integrated into Han China. This was caused by the southern Tiongnu being over dependent on Han China for its trade network and Han China ended up pulling all the strings. The Southern Xiongnu army were obliged to join Han China in their expedition against the Northern Xiongnu in the year 89. Not much detail is known about the conflict but we know that the Han army pursued the Northern Xiongnu led by their Chanyu into the Altai Mountains. There they accepted the surrender of the Northern Xiongnu at the Battle of the Altai Mountains. The northern Xiongnu were reduced to being an obscure tribal confederation and the Xiongnu imperial state that had been on a par with Han China a couple of centuries before was now gone. Han China would be free to control the western regions of the Tarim Basin and all of the oasis settlements of the Eastern Silk Road and this concluded the first century. This period of history is a glorious period for China culturally. Much literature was written describing acquired knowledge on subjects such as philosophy, nature, geography, mathematics and music, among others. Advances in technology and engineering were able to take place such as intricate metalworking devices such as lathes and the development of the first paper production methods in the world which we described during our two episodes on the history of writing during volume 2. One of my favourite artefacts from the Han period, particularly the 2nd century, is Zhang Hung's seismoscope. It's a beautiful piece of bronze scientific artwork that can be found at the Shanghai Earthquake Museum. It resembles a large pot, shaped like an urn, with a pendulum mechanism inside. On the outside of the pot are eight equidistant dragons' heads, each dragon mouth holding a small ball. Underneath each dragon's mouth, eagerly awaits a bronze frog with mouth open wide, ready to catch the ball. But only one frog will receive its gift, as the earth tremors cause the pendulum to swing in the direction of the tremor and cause one of the eight balls to drop. The Decline of the Hand Han China entered the second century dominant and well organised with a country administered in a number of ever decreasing divisions from the emperor's governors down to county level. However the eunuchs of the royal courts were collectively gaining more power and influence and were now becoming an unignorable faction of Chinese politics. The eunuchs were engaging in corrupt practices for their own means and the emperors seemed to lack the decisive power or desire to suppress this emerging threat to the fabric of the stability of the Chinese courts. It would be the scholars from the Confucian universities who would be the ones calling the eunuchs out for trying to control Chinese politics and so this would create tension between the scholars and the eunuchs. They would become rival factions of the Chinese government and both would try to win the favour of the Emperor of the day and his royal family, and sometimes by any means necessary. When the eunuchs persuaded the Emperor to arrest many Confucian scholars on the basis of their actions being detrimental to Han China, the scholars would become known as the Partisans. Han China's central authority had been weakened by natural disasters and political turmoil during the 2nd century. The eunuchs had become too powerful for Han China's benefit, and a plot to have the eunuchs massacred was foiled, causing the eunuchs to remove the partisans from government and suspend their civil liberties. Many other partisans were arrested and executed. In around the year 170, the Yellow River flooded, causing famine as the arable lands were destroyed, causing widespread peasant hardship. Things were really not looking generally favourable with self-serving corruption and dissent among the ranks at the top of Chinese politics and starvation and resentment among the people who were receiving no solutions at the bottom. Those who were suffering and receiving no relief from the Emperor and his court were convinced that the mandate of heaven, the blessing of the almighty heavenly essence that gave the Emperor the right to rule, was no longer with the Han Emperor. And those societies of the Yellow River who were starving, and those peasants who had travelled south only to be exploited by greedy landlords, had nothing left other than their fighting spirit and a rebellious group were united in a common cause to rise up against the central state. They would distinguish themselves by wearing cloths of yellow, and history knows them as the Yellow Turban Rebels. Although the main Yellow Turban Rebellion was a very brief period of time in Chinese history, it would trigger the complete change of direction for China forever. The yellow turbans schemed their rebellion in secret before unleashing it on Han China. Their leaders followed Taoist traditions and their yellow cloths represented the colour of earth, rising up against what they would see as the Han Dynasty's element of fire, represented by the colour red. The shock of the rebellion took place in the year 184 when officials within the Han courts learned of the rebellion and mobilised their armed forces. The Yellow Turbans were organised and ready for battle in various different locations hoping to disorientate the Han armed troops. The Yellow Turbans went on a wild rampage running the greedy landowners off of their land and destroying government buildings within the cities. Eventually, the Han armies re-strategised and began to pick off the Yellow Turban rebel groups one by one, weakening their abilities and influence. But this was done at great cost to Han China, already feeling the pinch of economic corruption and disruption going into this period. The yellow turbans had been suppressed but not eliminated and although Han China can credit itself with the victory, those lands and cities in the north that had been devastated and destroyed were now utterly worthless and certainly not worth Han expenditure in trying to recover and rebuild them, especially when the economy had been drained after being compelled to pay for the military response to the battles of 184. Han China had lost a great deal of territory, and these territories were left to the humble peasants to rebuild from scratch without any central authority other than the ones created within their own communities. By the middle of the 190s, those lands of the Yellow and Yangtze rivers, the traditional Chinese heartlands, were now slipping out of central Han control, including the lands of the southern Xiongnu, the Hexi Corridor, and the oases to the west. And the western regions surrounding the Tarim Basin, including the Eastern Silk Road. Millions had died and the lands were wasted. It would be the Chinese warlord called Cao Cao who would make his name during this period, rising to significance within the fragile Han government. I have seen him described as a vile bandit in times of peace and a heroic leader. In a time of turmoil Cao Cao's tenure as an important man in Chinese politics Coincided with the reign of Emperor Qian Who became the Han Emperor in 189 Emperor Qian had been instated with the help of another warlord Called Dong Zhuo Who sought to control him In fact this was a time where powerful warlords Would look to take control of the lands of the Han Dynasty After it had fractured and rebuild in an attempt for reconquest. Another warlord called Yuan Shao had successfully executed many of the eunuchs at the royal court, ending their interference with Chinese politics, and would stand against Dong Zhuo's monopolization of the Han imperial court, now centered at the weakening capital city of Luoyang. The country was now in civil war, with many warlords attempting to rise to prominence during the conflicts. A coalition against Dong Zhuo contained Cao Cao in league with Yuan Shao and they successfully pushed Dong Zhao out of Luoyang west to Chang'an where he would end up being assassinated. The coalition against him disbanded. It would be Cao Cao who marched on Luoyang and took the young Emperor Qian into his protection and therefore effectively replacing Dong Zhuo as a de facto regent for the remnants of the Han Dynasty. While Yuan Shao controlled lands in the north, Xiao, Xiao would secure the coastal lands of the east by defeating rival warlords in these lands. Other warlords would be doing similar things in other areas of China in a battle royale where the strongest would survive and the weakest would be eliminated. Cao Cao would battle against his former coalition ally Yuan Shao who challenged him at the Battle of Guangdu in the year 200. Cao Cao would defeat Yuan Shao enabling Cao Cao to unite northern China under his direction. Yuan Shao would flee and die of illness two years later. Cao Cao would then try to move southwards to secure the land south of the Yangtze River but two dominant warlords of the south led a coalition against Xiao Xiao and attempted to repel him. The two warlords were called Sun Chen and Liu Bei, and the legacy of their stand against Xiao Xiao would be significant to the next chapter of Chinese history. So there we go, a cliffhanger almost a red cliffhanger if you know where i'm going with that one and um once again a disclaimer from me um i'm not a chinese speaker i, I have little knowledge of the chinese language a very basic knowledge of the fact that the um it's very much down to the tones of the words and and i'm i've never been educated in that so if any of the names are incorrect or or mispronounced then I really sincerely apologise for that and uh, I hope it hasn't ruined your enjoyment of the episode. Now then, let's get stuck into some listener messages then. Let's find out who's written into the podcast this week. Um, we've got um, Ian Headley wakefield who I believe um, we mentioned last week as uh he he's uh been listening to the podcast and has heard some strange sounds going on in the background a bit of a hazard of of us amateur podcasters um here i am sitting in the front room of my uh, of my humble abode um so you get all sorts of noises like uh, the neighbors running their uh, cold water taps and things like that um it can be unavoidable. Um, noises out, so you get people shouting outside and things like that. So we get all sorts of noises. But yeah, um, Ian's noticed some little pops and and those sort of things that come up um, as a hazard of uh, using electronic equipment and uh, little gaps and silences. So and he's he's gone to some great trouble to um, listen to an episode and give me some time stamps So Ian, thank you so much. I will devote Um, some of my time to investigate in that and and once again as usual we just see if we can improve the sound quality and move things around so that um, there are not those annoying things that get in the way of the enjoyment of listening to the podcast. Uh, Lynn Dowling who's a a long time um, friend of the podcast and a, a member of the history of the podcast Illuminati put, um, hi Chris, I wanted to give you some feedback about the last few episodes on Chinese history. Many of us in the West know little of um, Asian history, so I'm glad you are devoting several episodes here. In today's world, it is so important for Westerners to have a better appreciation of Asian cultures, which, like all cultures, are almost completely informed by their history. Yes, of course, I struggle greatly with the proper names of Asian people and places, but we can only solve that through repetition and familiarity. I have to tell you, I had a real aha moment during episode 66, the Qin Dynasty. I had some familiarity with Confucianism and Taoism and appreciated learning more about when and how these philosophies arose. But I knew nothing of legalism and was blown away by your description of its philosophy and practices. I now have a better insight as... Many of these legalism precepts seem to have survived and underpinned Chinese government and culture today. We in the West take great pride in our ties to ancient Greece and its early democratic principles. Clearly China must also take pride in its links to the past. We do not have to like their history or philosophy, indeed they don't have to like ours either. But understanding where people come from, both literally and metaphorically, may ultimately be the only thing that saves our planet. So, as usual, kudos for the fine work you do. As After binging on the podcast from episode one to the present, I am finally caught up. Time sure seems to crawl between episodes now. I may just have to start all over again and pick up all the things I'm sure I missed the first time around. Best wishes, Chris. Lynn from San Diego. Thanks a lot, Lynn. Um, very interesting. It's um, Obviously, all of this has um, sparked, uh, sparked off a lot of um sort of mental activity for you so it's obviously something you thought about um sort of legalism really didn't have a great deal to do with chinese history until like the the sort of the maoist revolution of the 20th century really when uh, um the the communist chinese regime sort of took uh, power back of of mainland china and um and um they they introduced this sort of much more legalist approach um or, or sort of an approach that that echoed from legalism much more than um China previously. so uh, it's very interesting to consider how periods of history have influenced um the modern countries of today and certainly now we look at like sort of Maoism as. As becoming something a bit more archaic in Chinese history, but obviously, um, you know, there are some sort of very much sort of fundamental parts of China and its surrounding areas where this Maoist attitude is is still very prevalent to you know to this day. So history sort of tends to leave time uh, you know uh, stamps and and echoes of itself um, throughout. Uh, the future so it's uh it's, it's very interesting to consider all these things now then uh susan behrens has written in has put hello mr hasler just want to thank you for making such a great and interesting podcast there aren't many podcasts about the prehistoric world for some reason even though it is such an interesting topic before listening to your podcast i never realized how many different hominids preceded us i've only just finished the ice age so i still have a lot to look forward to recently i started enjoying your podcast uh started listening to your podcast while I was cleaning and gardening i never thought i would say this but i now actually like cleaning as your podcast makes it enjoyable well that i'll tell you what that's uh that's amazing thank you susan for the message um to actually create something that makes cleaning more enjoyable I thought it may be something like a cleaning product that you know that would be um, that would be the solution to that but not a podcast and isn't it amazing Um, yes prehistoric uh, history and uh, yeah but there isn't really enough stuff out there is there that um, talks about such uh, a fascinating topic which is uh, which is the history of humankind and, and all of our ancestors, all of our homo ancestors. Uh, Dimitar Totomanoff has written in, but hello Chris, going to try and make this short. I enjoy your podcast quite a bit. I've been listening through past episodes for a while now, but I just heard something which makes me question the veracity of some of the information you so nicely present, or at least the extent to which you check your sources. In the second part of your History of Writing series, you say that St Cyril created the Cyrillic alphabet when in fact he created the Glagolitic. Cyrillic was created by Cyril and his brother Methodius' disciples, but it basically took those characters from Glagolitic, which denoted typical Slavic sounds absent in the Greek alphabet and adapted the rest from Greek. This made Cyrillic easier to write and more politically acceptable because Glagolitic is freaky and looked like weird pagan runes to both the Greek and Latin clergy. Also, Cyr- Cyril was not a simple monk, but a high-ranking diplomat and a very well-versed polyglot. and um, thank oh, thank you dimitar That's a very very helpful message and, and i believe everything you've said to be true um um i i did very ambiguously suggest that saint cyril created the cyrillic alphabet um it's not strictly true and you're right to point that out dimitar and, and i apologize for that and that should be housekept uh, cyril yes he did create the glagolitic and uh the uh, Cyrillic alphabet was created in the aftermath, um, and not directly by Cyril himself, but it was just uh, named after him. Um, yeah, Cyril was not a simple monk. Yeah, well, I mean, we say simple monks, and maybe we, we've we got a, maybe a modern perception of what a monk is... Um, you know we we're not just talking about a man walking around in in a cloak here we're talking like the monks of the medieval age and certainly before were indeed the academics and, and were very high ranking uh, individuals in their own right um you know the 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 monasteries were uh, full of um intelligent people and certainly the um you know certainly the academics of society were were very much um you know you know within the monasteries as well so um yeah I, I I accept the point he was not just a simple monk but um yeah so but but being a monk in the medieval age is certainly a different thing to what um to what our concept of one is these days but um perfectly uh, good point well made there Dimitana and thank you so much for writing in it's it's not everyone that feels the courage to write in and correct. Um, correct a podcaster but us amateur podcasts um, we're always housekeeping because the the rate at which we present our information we are bound to make um, simple errors so thank you now there was a review this week from Pierre Secord who's put uh, five stars entertaining and educational Chris does a great job with his podcast he presents multiple points of view and theories on controversial theories he gives his thoughts after reading and evaluating uh, many scientific journals. He keeps it quite entertaining with his accent and comments. Well worth your time. And that's from the USA. So thank you so much uh, for that. And uh, you know, if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and review it because it does make a difference. It makes it um, more accessible to people. And, um, you know, it can also attract uh, funding from uh, volunteers who uh, who log on to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and click on the Patreon page uh, where they make monthly donations. And you can do that too. When you do that, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati. And uh, you can qualify for gifts and rewards just by doing that. Um, for as little as $1 a month and uh, we'd like to welcome into the Illuminati Klaus Lajo or Lajo um, sorry I'm bound to pronounce that incorrectly and Harry Gibbs who um, I'm fairly confident I've pronounced correctly so but thank you to you both and um, your contributions are highly valued and, and will be used wisely and um you know, I'll be in touch with you, you shortly, as I will to all of the patrons of the podcast, to let you know when you've qualified for for special privileges. So, thank you very much. I've I've sent out um, a couple of T-shirts and mugs in the last week or two. So, uh, those people who um, have qualified, their their stuff's on their way, and I've I've certainly sent out some uh, fridge magnets and and coasters and key rings, that kind of thing as well. So. Um, I've done my little trip to the post office obviously with my mask on and uh, as as is obligatory at the moment and uh, and I've sent those items so um, I'm sure you'll be receiving those shortly those of you who have qualified so thank you so much to all of you who contribute and um, you know keep up the good work and you're contributing towards this great project in your own way. Now we... Didn't follow the story of the Han Dynasty through to the bitter end this week, and that's because we're going to do a battle episode next week. We're going to find out what happened to Cao Cao when he tried to venture south of the Yangtze River in his bid to try and uh, get all the lands of Han, of, of Han Dynasty China back under one rule again as they'd uh, become fractured. Uh, in these later years of the second century how would Cao Cao get on he'd have to fight a great battle at Red Cliffs the Battle of Red Cliffs uh, it's going to be quite fascinating to see what happens in this site like, it's a naval conflict so um, and we haven't really discussed that in Chinese history at all have we so um, it will be a very interesting episode next week and a completely different perspective on, on Chinese military Uh, confrontation so not to be missed anyway thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast have a great week everyone and uh, as ever please be good come to the history of the world podcast.com and join all the other hot worlders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast@mail.com at mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.